Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Monica Osborne. Monica is a trauma expert and she's the author of The Miserabic Impulse. She, you can also find her writings at the LA Review of Books, The New Republic, JD Forward, and Newsweek. She used to be a professor of literature and film and trauma and she's also editing something called The Speech Project. Hi Monica, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so I reached out to you. Um, I watched your episode on uh, Hold My Drink. Right. And I, I've been following you a little bit on Twitter. And I reached out to you because of you know, the most recent spate of anti Semitic attacks. And because you know, I, I know you speak out a little bit about that. So. If you want to like talk a bit about that, I mean, I guess that kind of works in with some of the trauma stuff, because especially if you're seeing, if you're being like what I'm hearing about from like students and stuff like that, that's even worse. I should say worse, but you know, they're, they're being ostracized at school and things like that. So if you want to talk about some of the attacks and how that fits in with what you were talking about with trauma. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to begin from, a place of trauma when we talk about how to frame mm. these kinds of conflicts. And I'm not just talking about what's happening on the ground and in the air in Israel, Palestine, but mm. about what from that conflict has been imported, um, not just to the US, but to a number of countries, right? Um, you know, we saw what happened in London this past week. There were, um, you know, pro, pro Hamas protesters driving through the streets with Palestinian flags. Um, you know, shouting obscenities about Jews and, you know, saying let's you know, rape Jewish daughters, all sorts of really, really horrible kinds of things. Um, you know, so this is happening. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in the U.S. Um, but it, it is very much about trauma for both sides at the very beginning, I think. But, you know, uh, what has happened is that the, you know, you referred to the, the woke movement earlier, um, you know, the woke movement movement or, um, you know, the, the progressive or far left movement has essentially hijacked, uh, you know, what's going on in Israel. And, you know, they're, they're, they're using it to support their own agenda. And so I think because, you know, an organization like Black Lives Matter, for instance, they have such a big platform that when they post on Instagram, something along the lines of we condemn Israel and settler colonialism and white supremacy that positions not just Jews in Israel, not just Israeli Jews, but American Jews and Jews all over the world, really, regardless of their skin color or their other ethnic or national heritages, it positions them as white supremacist oppressors. And who do we hate more than anything right now? We hate white oppressors, right? So, you know, it's, it's interesting because while I think, you know, so many facets of this conflict did begin in a place of trauma. It's kind of been co-opted by something else. Just a couple of things on that. First, one quick thing. Like I've been speaking to a couple of psychologists and psychotherapists about this. And I mean, I don't know what, what you want to call it. Woke, you know, social justice, progressive, like that, that whole collective thing. They've co-opted terms like trauma. And they've co-opted terms like PTSD. 
um, you know, okay, I worked, I was a civilian. I never liked this, you know, I always want to make that clear. I was not a military, I was not military. I was not a soldier, but I worked in war zones for a long time. I was in Afghanistan for close to seven years. Now I had some weird things like it, because of all the, like being aware of landmines and like all the awareness training you get for landmines and like IEDs and stuff like that. I was uncomfortable for like, probably for the first six months, I wouldn't walk on grass. I wouldn't walk on anything that wasn't hard like a hard pack, like asphalt cement um, for about six months. And the whole first year, it made me uncomfortable. So you know, I'm not saying I had PTSD. Like I'm not trying to equate that with any, like, you know, anything long lasting thing or anything like that. But so I find like that's been, a, you know, co-opted. But another thing you'd mentioned, like the, we're importing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict here, but we're also exporting like that, you know, oh, the white colonial settler. Um, I see it also in um, like North Africa uh, and even other parts of the Middle East where secularism is a Western idea. Don't take it. It's colonialism. It's colonization. Um, you know, uh, there's a thing in South Africa going back about four or five years now. Science must fall and they need a black science, not, you know, not European science. So we're exporting that as well. And it's, you know, I, I understand the colonial thing. I mean, I go, I was born in India. My family's from there. I mean, originally my family's from Yemen. So I have an idea of like the colonial, but we're taking the worst parts of both of those things. We're taking the worst part of the Israeli Palestinian struggle. And we're taking the worst part of, you know, colonial studies. I mean, I don't think, the Edward Said Orientalism route is the way to go. I think there's, you know, an enlightened approach you can take to post-colonial living or thinking. Um, anyways, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, th th there's also a problem with the terms that are thrown around with mm -hmm. regard to Israel. And these are terms that, you know, the Black Lives Matter organization and other progressive institutions and activists are using all over social media right now. Ethnic cleansing is one. Um, there is no ethnic cleansing in Israel and Palestine right now. Um, do the Palestinian people have legitimate grievances against Israel? Absolutely. Um, you know, is the blockade a problem? Absolutely. There are a number of things that Israel needs to fix and needs to deal with. Um, but in terms of, you know, ethnic cleansing, I think it was uh, in 1948, there was something like 950,000 Palestinians. <clears throat> now there's something like 5 million. That's not ethnic cleansing, right? So they're, they're, they're taking these terms, these big, bad, you know, bombs of terms, and they're, they're dropping them for impact when they're not completely accurate. Um, you know, but just, I mean, just, just to go back, though, to trauma for a second, and I, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the kind of work you were doing and how it impacted you. And there, there is something traumatic truly traumatic about being exposed to those kinds of fears and threats day in and day out. So I understand that you don't want to necessarily, you know, compare that to, um, you know, other, other instances of trauma that are, are worse or greater or bigger, but there is an element of, of trauma there. Um, so I grew up in the home of a, uh, my father was uh, a Vietnam war, a veteran of the Vietnam war. And he fought in the notorious Battle of Hamburger Hill, 
um, you know, which was called that for a reason because, you know, they were literally crawling through dead and mangled bodies day in and day out. Um, you know, so I, you know, he, he was, he was wounded pretty severely and he came home and he never really left that war. Right. It was always with him. And this was something that he talked about all the time with us day in and day out. I'm the oldest of five kids. And it was something he talked about all the time. And, you know, the PTSD was extremely severe. Um, but there's, you know, an interesting thing that happens with trauma, right? You're either somebody who talks about it incessantly, like my father, or you never talk about it at all. And these are, you know, really the two responses to trauma. Um, you know, I remember, for example, one one story he told me when I was about 13 about being in a helicopter with uh, uh, members of the South Vietnamese army and a woman uh, from the village, a South Vietnamese woman from the village who the South Vietnamese soldiers were accusing of having aided and abetted the North Vietnamese army, right? Which is a bad thing. Um, they, they, you know, my, my dad's telling me a 13 year old girl this story. And he, he describes watching them put explosives into her body, light them and push her out of the helicopter. So, you know, I grew up with this idea of this body just falling through the sky over and over and over again, right? Stories that um, a 13 year old girl should not hear, should not know. And that, you know, there is an element of trauma to that. And there's, you know, we can pass trauma down through the generations. And all of this is true. And all of this is legitimate. Um, you know, so much of what we know, uh, as you know, as the field of trauma studies comes from work that was done after the Holocaust, psychologists working with Holocaust survivors over decades, really formed what we know of as the field of trauma studies now. Um, but it's, 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 it's maybe the term that's most overused now. Um, for instance, I, and I just actually wrote a piece about it the other, I just sent it off the other night. Um, a woman at, who's a parent at my son's school in Los Angeles, I'm in Vancouver now, but we're from Los Angeles. Um, she, she had found out a few months ago that another parent at the school was a Republican and had voted for Trump. And she, she went into hysterics and she claimed that she was traumatized, that it was real and legitimate trauma to find out that all of this time she, she had been in close proximity to, God forbid, a Republican, right? Because trauma now signifies you know, close proximity to someone who has a different viewpoint than you. So you can see this is just one of the many ways that trauma is being abused and misused and appropriated and hijacked and all of these things. And going back to Israel and Palestine, um, you know, the, the, the trauma that's used, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, uh, you know, by, by, by BLM, for instance, and other Black Lives, uh, other progressive institutions, this, you know, the, the legitimate trauma that non-white people have experienced in the U.S. and in other, other countries in the world, um, again, that's, that's a legitimate thing, but they are taking that idea of trauma and they are breaking it into oppressor and oppressed, right? You're either an oppressor or you're somebody who's oppressed and you can't be both. And it all has to do with trauma for them. Um, okay, the white thing, because even with the conservative thing, there's something, but like 
I'll circle back to that later, but the white thing. Now, I was joking around with some friends last year. And, you know, one of them's a professor of psychology. Another one, she's, you know, she's fairly active, you know, constantly calling out like things like anti-Semitism. And she does a lot of good threads about the history of um, Jews, especially in North Africa and things like that. And, you know, I was joking with them because last year there was a lot of it that came out and I'd seen some of this stuff before where, you know, okay, the, when Jews talk about the Holocaust, they're centering it on whiteness because they were European Jews and they were white. And I was, you know, that was, even though it was done by other white supremacists, they were part of the white system, blah, 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 blah. They're centering their, they're centering that all on whiteness because it's, you know, something that happened to them. Look at how many people slavery killed and all, all this stuff. And then Anne Frank, oh, she was just another white girl and, you know, white women's tears. And I mean, like I was reading this and this is, this is okay, a, a fringe, but some of these people on that fringe have, you know, a fairly decent follower count. I was joking with them. I said, you're going to see it. So this was last year around this time. I said, you know, you're going to see it within two years. And I think I was being generous with the two years that, that if it's people, if they're, you know, Ashkenazi Jews. So basically, you know, white passing Jews, I, stupid terms, but whatever. Um, they are, they are going to be said that they can't face anti-Semitism because they're white or white passing. And I mean, things like that are already starting to happen. And this, this idea of conferring whiteness, like I've been saying this for a couple of years. I'm like, you're not, not only are you saying white people are evil, but you're giving certain traits and you're making being successful equating to being white. And, you know, same time last year, I saw it against, I saw this thing saying yellow privilege and then there was brown complicity and white supremacy and that kind of stuff. I'm like, and you're, you guys are taking on whiteness. Like my government, like our government in Canada, we're teaching our diplomats that being on time and being perfectionist and, you know, individuality and objectivity is white supremacy culture. Like, what does that say to the brown people in this country? Like what, you know, like, so that demonization of white and now then when, you know, you equate Jews to being white. And unfortunately, you, you know, the pigmentation of Ashkenazi Jews is you know, lacking melanin, but it's like, you're, you're breaking it down to such a small thing. And then you're making it the Palestinians or the pro like the, the very far right protesters or the far right, whatever you want to call them, like the, the you know, the pro Hamas protesters in the UK, which I think are worse than the, in North America, but even the ones in North America, you know, 2015, 2014, they weren't brave enough to be doing what they're doing now, but now they're seeing that, okay, you know, Jews aren't getting any cover because, oh, they're white. And that's coming from quote unquote progressive circles. That's coming. So like on that end of things, like is like, how does that set that? Like you're setting up people to say, okay, like, is that a signal for someone who, wants to cause harm is that like a like what is that is like okay we're having a fire sale here like come on in like what what does that say to someone like that well i i think it is giving people license to go after jews mm -hmm. i think it's open season on jews right now i think it's suddenly been made acceptable to 
demonstrate anti-Semitism. Um, you know, if you're on social media, you know that back in June after the, the murder of George Floyd, everybody was posting their black squares on Instagram. You know, th- there was a lot of even um, bullying, right? If you didn't post a black square, right. but you, you know, any, any most reasonable, you know, reasonably decent people were horrified by what we saw with regard to George Floyd. Um, you know, it was like one of the few times where, you know, I'm thinking Americans have come together. And, um, you know, this was a moment where we could have all, you know, been together. So, you know, so much of this goes back to, again, if you're either a, a, a victim or an oppressor, and this is what CRT pushes, this is what critical race theory pushes, um, this is what's being pushed in progressive circles. And it, it's nothing new, right? I mean, this goes all the way back to the German Enlightenment. It goes all the way back to Hegel and the whole, you know, every relations, in every relationship, there's a master and there's a slave. And that's how we understand ourselves, right? We can only see ourselves as an oppressor or somebody who is oppressed. And so, you know, what's, what's happening is it's this, the problem is with the binary, the problem is with the dichotomy, right? And in many cases, Jews complicate that binary, right? Because are Jews white or are they something else? And of course, again, like there are Ashkenazi Jews are light-skinned Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are white passing Jews, you know, again, and I also hate all of that language because I hate seeing anything, not anything, but I hate seeing everything through the lens of race, right? Because if we only see things through the lens of race, we're abandoning the class lens and, you know, all of these other lenses that are really, really important. Um, so, you know, and in, in this, you probably heard the term multiracial whiteness. Have you heard that yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's got to be my favorite. <laughs> um, you know, if you're black and you voted for Trump, you're white now because because multiracial whiteness and that's that's a really big problem yeah um i, I call so, the, i call that the transracializing effect of problematic comments right yeah that's, <laughs> that's really good that's really good actually um so multiracial whiteness so you know jews always problematize these kinds of these kinds of binaries, right? Because are Jews white? Are they something else? And you know, as I said, there 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 are all sorts of things. And Ashkenazi Jews, of course, have white or light skin. Um, but the situation of you know the majority of Jews in Israel are are not white in that traditional sense, right? They're they're you know Mizrahi Jews, or you know they're they're Jews that have come from North Africa, or all of these Arab countries that have expelled. Jews throughout the 20th century. You know, millions of Jews were expelled from countries in the Middle East by, um, you know, Islamic extremists or, you know, Arab imperialist regimes, right? And so, you know, if if those Jews are white, well, then so are the, the Arab countries that the people in the Arab countries that expelled them, right? So there's like this constant playing and tweaking of the terms to suit what really is a, a political agenda. And I think that's that's what's really, really problematic. And again, like I, like I was saying, I'm, I'm getting the train of thought back. Like I was saying, um, you know, Hegel was the first one to really, um, I don't know, popularize is the right, right word, but we'll just, we'll just say popularize the idea of oppressor and oppressed. And every movement, every revolution has really picked that up historically since then. And of course, you know, this is what critical theory is premised on critical theory and critical race theory, this, this binary relationship. And I think that's part of the problem. Well, it's, it's one of the biggest problems 
with how, you know, those of us who are outside of Israel and Palestine, how we see and understand the conflict. We're, we, we've been conditioned to see everything as an either or relationship, right? The good guys and the bad guys. There's no complexity. There's no nuance. And so we can only see what's happening in Israel and Palestine through that, that binary lens. And I think that's creating a lot of problems. Add to that the fact that nobody has time or, or inclination to do the research into some of these complex, um, you know, historically complex situations, right? They would rather take a tweet or um, an infographic on Instagram and read it, believe it, feel as if they know what's going on, and then, you know, post the heck out of it. Um, so that's, that's part of what's happening right now. And again, like, you know, I'll probably say this over and over. I think a lot of the outward and blatant displays of anti-Semitism that we're seeing right now um, are a direct result of, um, you know, the CRT and the, the woke movement and, you know, some of these other uh, progressive movements. I think they're directly connected. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. I, I study political science. Now I focus mainly on Central and Eastern Europe, but I also took a bunch of courses on terrorism and things like that in if you read about what some of the regimes did and just, you know, it doesn't take much to dehumanize people. And it doesn't take much. Like, I mean, like I said, equating whiteness with evil. And then you're starting this with young kids. Now, like, you know, like in Pol Pot's regime, uh, it was, uh, I forget what it was called, but it was an account of a reporter and he was hiding out because he didn't want himself to be found out to be intelligentsia, right? And he didn't want to be killed. And, you know, kids, young kids who were maybe 10 or 11, after a couple of years, they were, like he described a game now they were playing and it was just, just killing little other little children just randomly. And it was just because they could dehumanize them so much. And it's, you know, so, seeing that like calling people white like first of all like i said equating basically successful with white and you know property is whiteness capitalism is whiteness everything's whiteness like, again even last year in the riots in some of the riots um after george floyd synagogues were damaged you know, and people like hannah nicole jones said well that's just property and property is whiteness and that's just you know people propping up whiteness when you're complaining about the synagogue being damaged, it's like, well, no, it was, you know, and again, they had free Palestine written on the synagogue. And it's like, what does free Palestine have to do with the BLM movement? And you, this is not the trauma or whatever, but that's like the totalitarian side of that. You know, none of us are free until all of us are free. It's like, I was speaking about this the other day and I said, I think it's like the trans movement's small. You know, BLM is not a huge movement. Like the protests got a lot of support, but now you see the support for the movement itself going down. But there's not a lot of people in BLM, like critical race theorists, you know, gender theorists, queer theorists, all these people from the academy. They're not a large group. So they band together. Then you have on the Palestinian side, you have people like Linda Sarsour, you have groups like CARE. I mean, we can get into, you know, Omar and Talib and all that if you want. But I mean, like, but grassroots on the ground care goes along with blm quite a bit so 
they kind of have to co-opt each other's stuff. So they, they're, they're getting their strength in numbers. So it's, it's just, so, you know, you have BLM talking about the whiteness stuff. Cause they had a lot of the melanin theory from nation of Islam as well. Like BLM and national Islam are tied together. So, you know, it's they're they're sharing. They're using whatever theories each other has directed towards their, you know, their enemy. You know, if it's Linda Sarsour, yeah, it's Israel. So everything's got to do with Israel. So even BLM has something to do with Israel because it's police oppression here and it's police oppression there. Right. It's like that dehumanization and that constant that's going out. Now, like if you're, like I said, you know, there was Jewish students recently putting out saying, okay, I, I can't, I'm losing friends or I can't go to, you know, I, I'll be told to stay off campus, this and that. Like, not even the physical attacks, but this kind of constant mental pressure, like where you're from all quarters, like, what is that? Like, the, the kind of effect that will have on someone. Sorry, I rambled there to get to a <laughs> question. Oh. Um, well, I mean, what, I mean, what, like, what, do you, what is the, I mean, what, what are you? Well, I mean, like, I've been seeing things where, Students are saying I'm not, you know, they're they're not welcome in school, or they're. Well, I'll give you another example. I saw on the British police in small some town said there's going to be a pro-Palestinian uh, protest. We cannot guarantee your pro safety if you're Jewish. Please stay inside your homes. Now, there's you know there are things from students where they're saying we were told that we can't, you know, be on campus. We should stay at a campus that you know like or not visible, like, don't wear a kippah, don't wear a star, David, don't wear it. Like, you know, so those kind of messages, like, how does that, you know, like you have the physical side of it, you know, being attacked. And, but then those kind of messages, like how are, you know, well, you have to live like that. Like, how does that affect your psyche? Like, Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's stressful to say the least. I mean, in Los Angeles and probably other places, you know, you know, some Jewish families have questioned whether they need to start taking the mezuzah off their doorframe so that their house isn't, um, you know, easily identified as a Jewish home. And, you know, I have to admit, my husband and I did the same thing. We're, you know, living in Vancouver, but we have a house back in LA and my brother is staying there. And, you know, he's, you know, my youngest brother. And even though he's an adult, I think of him as the baby. And I, I just started thinking about, well, he's alone in that house. There's a mezuzah on the door. What if someone sees it? Should we have him take it down? You know, these are the kinds of things that we're all experiencing right now. And, you know, just yesterday, um, a synagogue that I've spent a lot of time in and a kosher restaurant in Los Angeles that I've eaten at, I, I can't count how many times I've eaten at it. We're both, they both had bricks thrown through the windows yesterday. And then just last week, um, you know, another kosher restaurant we eat at all the time out in the valley, that was vandalized. So it's, it's really close to home for people right now. And, you know, somebody like me, you know, I've taught a lot of courses on the Holocaust and on anti-Semitism and stuff like that. You know, it's, I've been talking about it for years. You, you would think that, that I would, I wouldn't be surprised. And yet there is a part of me that's, you know, not just chilled by what's happening, but surprised, even though I've been predicting it, you know, for the past couple of years, I've been saying, I think, I, I, I think it's going to get unsafe for Jews. I really do. I really, really do. Um, you know, to the point that a couple of years ago, I even thought about, um, should I remove, 
you know, any, any, you know, telltale sign of Jewishness from my, my social media presence. Um, and then I realized like that I would have to like clean the whole internet of my <laughs> presence. It's like, I've, I've exposed myself too much, um, you know, with everything I've written and talked about and taught, um, you know, but these are the things we're thinking right now. And I, I, this feels different. The antisemitism we're seeing right now feels different than anything we've experienced. And, you know, the, the way that, the way that they're spinning it and the, the mental gymnastics that they're using to, you know, some of the pro, pro Hamas and anti-Israel and really anti-Jewish activists is it's, 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 I want to say it's fascinating, but it's, it's horrifying, right? I mean, just this week we saw activists saying on Twitter and Instagram, things like stop condemning anti-Semitism. You're just playing into their hand. You're just giving them what they want, right? You know, this, this nebulous they and them, you know, it's, um, we've never seen that that I'm aware of like people literally saying stop condemning anti-Semitism because you're you're reinforcing white supremacy when you condemn anti-Semitism it's crazy it's crazy did you see the people are did you see the headline the New York Times the opinion piece which one yesterday it was a couple of days ago uh basically the same thing all these anti-Semitic attacks are helping out the Republicans and it was like like huh where's that coming from that's it. Wait, anti-Semitic attacks are helping the Republicans because you're publicizing the attacks and it's like, you know, it, they, because they're anti-Israel. Oh, stop publicizing them. Yeah. They were saying. yeah, they're saying because they weren't even saying so much publicizing them. It was almost a lament that these attacks are happening and it's helping the Republicans. Right. But it's like, that's the wrong <laughs> reason to be concerned about the attack. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's gotten, it's gotten really, really bad. And, you know, I, we, you know, fortunately saw a, a strong condemnation of it from the Biden administration. And I was very happy to see that, um, you know, because other people in, you know, the American political arena, you know, people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and, and AOC and others um, have not, I mean, I think Omar did say something, you know, condemning anti-Semitism, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to take her seriously with everything else she has said that has been, um, you know, so, so anti, anti-Israel, um, you know, and again, like it's, I don't, I don't want to conflate Israel and diaspora Jews, right? Because some of the attacks right now are, are very much because of what's happening. They blame, um, uh, American Jews or, 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 or European Jews for what's happening in Israel, um, which is really, really frightening, right? Because Jews in America are Americans. They're not Israelis. Yeah. Is there a connection to Israel? Sure. But for many, it's, it's simply symbolic. You know, we're, we're citizens of other countries. Um, so, you know, yeah. it's... But, but that's playing on the old trope of Jews control the government, you know, Jews control the media, Jews control the government, Jews, you know, whatever, magical Jewish powers. But the guy who shot up the, the Tree of Life synagogue said the same thing. It's Jews letting in all these immigrants and these, oh, it's, it's you know, Jews are controlling the government. It's uh, if the government does anything pro-Israel, oh my God, they're supporting. So like, I mean, just like just that fact itself of either, you know, 
it doesn't matter what. I mean, I, I think at this point it could be like we're going to donate money for, you know, children's charity or something like something like completely benign like that will be politicized, whether you do or you don't. And it's, right. you know, but one other thing you mentioned now, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the arguments I'm seeing now, whether it's against um, what is CRT and the, you know, the people attacking CRT or, you know, what you just mentioned about anti-Semitism, right? Oh, don't, don't point out the anti-Semitism because it's going to help white supremacy. There was the exact same thing with ex-Muslims. It was the exact same thing. And now I, I'm not saying ex-Muslims are new or whatever, like, because these kind of criticisms, oh, you're helping the other side, like that, that goes back a long time. Like you can look at black conservatives going back into the sixties and the seventies, how they were attacked. But, you know, a lot of the complaints, you know, against especially early on when it was only like people like Ian Hersey Ali and a couple others that were speaking out no left-wing media would touch it so she ended up going on Fox it's like oh my god you're speaking to white supremacists blah 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 and you're helping them out and you know there was a huge okay huge within the the, the community of ex-Muslims and the people speaking out against Islam like reform Muslims and ex-Muslim there started being a rift of, oh, don't speak there because you're helping out white supremacists. And that, that became the argument. It's the same thing happening here. The argument's not, the argument isn't around uh, whether or not, and it, that, I mean, this shouldn't really be an argument, like, you know, attacking Jews, is that good or bad? Like, okay, obviously, you know, I mean, that shouldn't be an argument, but it's gone from there to how can we frame this so we don't empower white supremacists? But it's like, okay, you know, white supremacists like when Jews get attacked. <laughs> like what you like, right. you know, they'll they'll participate. So maybe focus on the attacks, not worry about what white supremacists think. <laughs> you know, like it's and it's I see so many parallels within like what was and there's still lots of problems with you know speaking out against Islam. You still get it, you know, you still get called you know horrific things for pointing out that the the hijab is misogynistic and you still get you know like you know like there's a there's a huge fight between ex-muslims and gay muslims because ex-muslims they're no longer muslim and i mean like okay but you know gays aren't exactly accepted in islam either so sorry i don't want to derail this with that talk but there is a there's a lot of similarities and I, i i keep seeing this over and over and over again and it's I mean, it's just dogmatic thought. Like all these people think one way. I mean, they might have a, whatever they hate is something different, but they go about it the same way and they think about it the same way. And you, like I said, I'd come back to the right wing thing. And it's, it's the same thing here. After 9-11, they made criticism of Islam, right wing, racist, Islamophobic. And I'm not saying that there wasn't part of that, but they made all of it. During the Obama years, they made patriotism, right wing and racist. And again, you have things like the Tea Party. I'm like, I'm not trying to absolve anyone on the right of any of the craziness that came from there. Just, And then obviously with Trump. But you conditioned people for 20 years that right wing was evil. Now, if you don't like something, oh, it's just right wing. So if it's support for Israel because Trump was more pro-Israel than you know any recent president, oh, that's a right wing thing. That's a GOP thing. That's a Trump thing. It's it's easy to paint that evil 
And it's, I mean, like with this, I'm, I'm literally going to say they condition people to equate right wing with evil. Like it's, you know, you have, and this is not, you know, like I'm not trying to go into any trope of, you know, who controls the media or whatever, but it was done through media and it was done through academia. And it was, you know, it was, it was acceptable conditioning going through. And now it's, it's just so easy. Like, it, like, I mean, I don't know how long you've been here in Canada, but that's all our prime minister does. If someone criticizes them, oh, you're using right-wing politics. Oh, that's Trumpian politics. And it's like, that's not a, that's not a defense of your policies. And that's, that's where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's the, the discourse has become so polarizing um, and so divisive, you know, I remember on social media over, I mean, really, it's really like over the past four years, once Trump got elected, so many people in my circles, you know, I was living in Los Angeles, um, you know, LA is a very um, <clears throat> Democrat left. I want to say liberal, but I feel like so much of what's going on is illiberal on the left. It's, it's not really classic liberalism, um, you know, but it was very, you know, left liberal Democrat community, everybody kind of thinks the same way. And of course, coming from academia, everybody's very far left. And, you know, in some disciplines, especially, um, you know, in humanities and English and literature and philosophy, um, if you're not on the far left, you don't, you don't want people to know, right? Um, you know, so I, I would see people on social media saying things like over the past years, if I, if I find out that any of my Facebook friends voted for Trump, then, you know, I will delete them or you should just delete yourself now because I don't want to be, I don't, I don't need anybody in my life like that. You know, and yeah, I mean, Trump was, I mean, he was Trump. I mean, so many awful things that, that, that he did and said, yeah. and, you know, so many reasons to despise him, you know, he's not a very kind person. Um, but, you know, th there, there were also times when, the media would report that he said something or did something. And then I, I, after a while I would go watch like the whole clip and I, I would realize sometimes that it wasn't exactly, he didn't exactly say or do what they were saying he said or did, but I couldn't dare say that to anybody in my circle of friends for the most part, because then I could be painted as a Trump supporter. Um, you know, likewise with the Abraham Accords that the Trump administration facilitated, um, that was a really incredible and historic and positive thing, but you weren't allowed to say that either because it was something that the Trump administration did and, and therefore it's evil. Everything he does is evil, right? Um, then again, I don't, you know, on the right, you know, the American right, we see that too, you know, the way that they paint the left and even the Biden administration is it's all bad all the time. Um, you know, and I think the question is, how, how do we how do we move on from something like that as a, as a country? Because, you know, I think it's, you know, we're very divided right now. So then, you know, you add something like Israel-Palestine to the mix. We just want to stay divided. You either, you know, people on the right support Israel no matter what, you know, you know completely and fully. And many people say, you know, there, there's you can't criticize Israel because that's anti-Semitic, which I disagree with. I think, you know, you can and, and should criticize Israel just like you should, can and should criticize any country, 
right? But then you've got people on the left saying, you know, Israel, it's all bad all the time. It shouldn't even exist. You know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. We've got American politicians tweeting that out, saying that. And, you know, what they're saying is from the river to the sea, there need to be no more Jews. We need to get rid of them. You know, so this this is really dangerous and violent rhetoric that's being pushed. Um, and I'm starting to get riled up. <laughs> when you said, you know, my friends don't want it. To, oh, if there's a Trump supporter in here, you heard Don Lemon say that, at, you know, oh, if you go home for Thanksgiving and some of your one of your families voted for Trump, like disown them like there's like that kind of rhetoric again. That's being in the academy. So, like, because you mentioned critical theory now, I'm going to take like Marcuse's idea of uh, repressive tolerance. That came, like, I know he wrote the paper in like 64, 65, but that came into the academy and the colleges of learning around the mid 80s. So, let's say around 85, 86. That idea was coming in. And now you're going through the school system, regardless of if you're conservative or if you're, you know, liberal democrat republican it doesn't matter majority of people go through the public school system that was being incorporated into the public school system so you had the idea of and so you're getting both kids you know kids from all backgrounds getting that idea now not everyone's going to pick it up 100 but it's in the back of your mind now just take, I don't want to say innocuous, but if you just take like Twitter's terms of service, or if you take Reddit's terms of service, things that'll get blocked or things that cause harm, they use the, the, they're specifically using harm in the same way Marcuse used it. And so when you have a generation of kids right or left growing up with this, and then they go into university and they're, you know, taking some mandatory diversity training that's built you know like has this stuff as a foundation or at least as a scaffolding to build on right like it's you're getting that reinforced over and over and over again and so yeah you're going to come out and you're going to be polarized and it's going to be you know cut out your family cut out your friends i mean you know the people who write about this stuff being a religion i mean i think they're spot on it's one of the first things I noticed about it, but in Islam, it says, do not, you know, only have friends with, with the Muslims. Like it says, don't, don't kill the people, of the book, you can keep them as second, third class citizens. But it, I mean, it, it even says like, you know, do not take friends from among the Jews and the Christians, like only have Muslim friends. Like if you go to, if you're in a cult, like cut off all dealings with the outside world because you don't, but that's happening on both sides. By the time you get out of university, it's too late. Like if, like that's why I think the, some of the push that's going on and what's going on in K through 12 is really important right now, because it's, you know, this is not just about turning your kids into leftist drones or whatever you want to say. This is about affecting all kids and, you know, the, the, whatever the home life is, everything that's going to affect them. So if they get this idea that they have to cut out everything that's evil, you know, everything that's harmful is evil. And they come home and you know they get conflicting ideas of what's harmful, so they decide for themselves. And then now that's evil, and they've been given only one toolkit, and that's to root out that evil. I mean, it's like, like I'm the education system. I mean, like it's not just a simple problem of fixing K through twelve. You've got the you know 
colleges of learning, you've got the university, like it's, it's a whole system that needs to be fixed. But in my mind, that's the biggest problem right now. It's like, if, if you want less of this to happen, like the people who are out there right now, you have to deal with them. But if you want to have, stop having, you know, drones, like extremist drones coming out of K through 12 education. Like it's, you know, it's like the, the, the education system I'm seeing right now is a, you know, it's a school to extremism pipeline. It's it's and it's an extremism of any stripe. I'm not saying it's oh you're going to be white supremacist. You're, it's like you, like the nut bars are going to have a smorgasbord to feed off of, and like that's where I'm. That's my con- hugest concern about this. Like when you're talking about like the narrative of coming out here, victimizing people and like polarizing people. But I mean like, I wish more people would pay attention to the education stuff than these little stupid things. Like, are you helping right wing and left wing? Are you doing this and that? Are you using a Trump talking point? Like, you know, you're not going to catch the orange plague. Like just like, just be honest with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What's I, I, I agree. I think what's going on in, um, you know, the the K to 12 school system is one of one of, if not the biggest problem we have right now. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, we, you know, again, we're in, we're in Canada and my son's been in public school here this year. And I haven't, I haven't really seen a lot of it um, that the CRT and all of that, but um, you know, I don't, so I don't know the extent to which it's a, as much of a problem in Canada. Um, I know it's here, but I, you know, so I, I can speak to what's going on in LA and the reason we are, we are moving out of LA is precisely because of what's happening in the schools, because we feel that there's, there's nowhere left in Los Angeles to, to send our son to school. Like it, it feels that bad to us. Um, you know, for instance, uh, my son's school in LA, they recently announced that they're transitioning to a new curriculum um, from the Teaching Tolerance Organization, which is re- recently rebranded as Learning for Justice. So, you know, it sounds great, right? Teaching tolerance. Who doesn't want tolerance? It sounds wonderful. But, you know, being who I am, the kind of person I am, I went to that website. I read every single link. I read every single document. I mean, it took me days to go through everything. Mm-hmm. But I looked at every single thing. And I was, um, I mean, sickened and horrified and devastated by what I saw. I mean, whether it's, you know, they, they literally say math is political. We need to make math political. And what they essentially do is turn math into a social studies class with a few numbers sprinkled in, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy to me, you know, and they, they, they literally say this teaching, teaching tolerance, they literally in their newsletter um, say that what, what educators should be doing is centering black and brown students, move those students to the front of the classroom and to the center, move white students to the back and to the periphery. When students have questions in class, you call on all your black and brown students first. And if there's time, you call on your white students. I mean, they literally spell this out, right? It's not like it's a hidden agenda. It's, it's extremely blatant. And I, I just think, how, how is this going to bring people together? This is going to build and breed animosity among children, right? This isn't going to do anything to help race relations. And if you really do believe systemic racism is a thing, this kind of, of, of behavior and pedagogy is not going to do anything to solve it. Um, 
but again, I, I don't think they really want to solve it because there's no business in solving it. And you know, the DEI and the anti-racism business is a billion-dollar industry. So you need people to continue to think that they are perpetually and eternally victims, right? They have to always be oppressed or there's no business, right? So this, this is still very much about money and it's wreaking havoc and destruction in the schools. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like you say, it's a really big problem and it's something that I am deeply concerned about. I mean, okay. The, just a nice odd here, like in Canada, as far as CRT training, there are a few schools that are starting it and more so after the George Floyd killing. Now, before that in, um, and it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult here in Canada. Like I, I haven't gotten anything from, anyway. again, I'm not a big person to be getting these things like, but a couple of parents have sent me a few things. It's the CRT style stuff is starting, but if you go back a few years, like even in middle schools around 2014, they had, especially on the feminist side of things, they were breaking it down to oppressor oppressed. So they were breaking, they were bringing that in and we deal more with the post-colonial stuff, which is, you know, coming out of the, which is an offshoot of post-modernism than more so than the critical theory. So it's, you know, Canada always took it from a post-colonial viewpoint as opposed to a race viewpoint, whereas the United States, it was coming from, you know, it was always the debate about slavery. And so that brought the race issue into it. And so the critical legal scholarships and all that, that started in the seventies, that started off from looking at the legal scholarship based on race. Whereas in Canada, because it was more homogeneously white, like French and British than it was, you know, black people coming in here. Um, then you had what happened with the first Nations, So that's why it's a more of a post-colonial lens on that. So it's, and I think it's, it's less overt in the actual, if you go to the websites of some of the curriculums, it's, it's just kind of a framework. It doesn't tell you what to teach and teachers have a lot more Liberty. Like just again, speaking with parents. So this is anecdotal. I cannot, you know, I don't have numbers or anything on it. Um, you know, a parent can have two kids in a school and one English teacher will be following the curriculum more or less. The other one's like, okay, we're going to study, you know, how to be an anti-racist. I, I, you know, like just, or between the, okay. between the world and me or something like that. Like it's, it's. So it depends on who you get. Yeah, and it depends on what is being taught to the individual students and what they're using. It's so I'm worried about it in Canada. It's I'm more worried about it in Canada in the encroachment in government we have a ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. And the main focus of that ministry is to have an anti-racism secretariat, basically, and, and, and focusing on anti-black racism and it's straight Ibram Kendi anti-racism. I was just going to say, yeah, and, yeah uh, he, he, yeah, he wants to create um, a DOA, a department of anti-racism mm -hmm. in the U S so. that, that isn't um, subject to any checks and balances. And that has to essentially okay, any piece of legislation or any law that's passed has to go through this DOA. I mean, I find it chilling and, um, you know, straight out of the totalitarianism manual. Yeah. I mean, technically our Trudeau got elected last time with a minority government. And that was, you know, just before COVID like it was late, late in 2019. So then COVID started becoming more of a thing in early 2020. Right. So 
this didn't thing didn't really get a chance to take off. But if you read their mandate, it's you know they will look at all other ministries and government programs to make sure that they're following the anti-racism and also the gender base plus analysis of all legislation. So yeah, they're basically the watchdog for all the other, you know, they're the ministry of truth, right? It's so in yeah. Canada, it's coming in more that way than it is through the education system, but it, it is still there. Like, and our focus on the education system ever since, especially like bill C-16 has been more on the gender side of things. So you'll have more of a push on, you know, like their lawsuits, I'm sure you're just getting way off here, but the lawsuits, there's one in Ontario where a little girl was told that there's no such thing as 100% boy, 100% girl, and she was in kindergarten. And she was asked to just put on her spectrum where she was, and she put it at 100% girl, and the teacher said, there's no such thing. That's impossible. You can't be a boy or a girl like that. And, like, I mean, wow. you're messing, like a kindergarten kid, right? So five or six years old, you're messing up these little kids. Um, so, yeah, there's, we've got our issues. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, certainly, certainly. And I, you know, I've been very aware of the, the post-colonial lens being up here. And in, in some ways, you know, it's been good. You know, my, my son has learned, I mean, he can talk about, you know, so he knows so much about, you know, First Nations and Indigenous cultures. And I think there's something really great, really powerful about that. You know, I think that it's, it's when you then take it and use that lens to see everything, you know, through which to see everything and, you know, impose, you know, one kind of ideology onto everything else, you know, which is, you know, we're doing it with race in the US. We see everything through the lens of race, you know, nobody, nobody wants to talk about class, right? Everybody just wants to talk about race because that's, you know, and again, like I, as, as, you know, former professor of critical theory and critical race theory, I've taught all of these things in the classroom. Um, you know, I always taught it as, you know, every school of thought within critical theory and then including critical race theory, it's, it, there are all of these different lenses that we can apply all of the time simultaneously. You don't just pick one and then everybody has to, to use that lens. Um, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think that's what critical theory is there for. Um, you know, I, an example, like I would have uh, the class, they would all read the same novel and then they would each pick a theoretical lens to, to, to look at through which to look at the novel. And they would write an essay and they would do a presentation. So, you know, let's say one student was like, okay, I'm going to use feminist theory to read this novel. And then he or she would give their presentation and about, you know, the, the, the way that the book um, changes based on how you look at it. And then somebody else would do critical race theory. Somebody else would do Marxism. Somebody else would do deconstruction. And, you know, the fascinating thing is that depending on the lens that was used on the same book, the presentation and the interpretation completely different. And that, that's, that's where I think that there's value and usefulness in critical theory. But, you know, I think that it's, it's, you know, and admittedly, I, you know, I always kind of loved it, you know, it was like this fun intellectual game. I never really expected it to be, you know, free flying through the streets out of the university and that's what's happening um and it's 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 a problem okay but i mean all right now admittedly i have not read a lot of critical theory like i mean i got out of academia in the mid 90s you know then i then i went into it like there's there was no reason for me to have read a lot of it like it was just yeah, uh, right you know, and, and i've got a poli sci degree also but i mean I, I touched on some of the postmodernism when i was in school i touched on some of the post-colonialism um but I 
I just went into critical race theory and intersectionality and I read some gender and queer theory. Like I just, I was, you know, I was getting called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. And I'm like, where the hell is this coming from? And I, and that, that's, that's, that was my whole impetus to find out why, where is this coming from? And then I ended up going down this, this rabbit hole. So yeah, you know, and because of that, I, you know, like I said, I read, you know, Marcus's paper. I read a couple well, paper. I read a couple of his things. I read some, you know, Gramsci, I, I, but I didn't go back and read books and I, I just, I just didn't have time and it was, it was too dense. And I'm like, I'm not an academic anymore, but okay. As an intellectual exercise and as a way to look at things as, you know, yeah, I could appreciate some of that stuff, but like you said, like, okay, it went, it was meant to stay as an enterprise, but it was, I don't know how much you know about like, um, like things like the Muslim Brotherhood or whatever. And the way I equated it was the guy who started the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan Albana, he had an idea of uh, an identity, a Muslim identity-based politics, basically. And he wanted a Muslim Brotherhood and it would start, you know. And I mean, he was getting followers, but it wasn't really accepted and it was kind of kept to the fringes and the government was opposed to it because it was someone else having power, right? Then you had Sayyid Qutb pick it up um, after Hassan al-Banna and he did this thing called pan-Islamism and I mean he'd studied in the states in the late 40s or so I, I, I'm gonna get the dates wrong and so he saw all this like you know, he saw some of the Marxism he saw some of this I mean like the Frankfurt School I guess was just getting going around that time so he brings that back to North Africa and he brings that back to Egypt and he uses he creates an Arab-based identity politics around it and he makes it applicable and it makes it more functional to be used outside and i look at Derek bell as hassan albana and i look at kimberly crenshaw as sayed kutub kimberly crenshaw took the theoretical physics of you know critical race theory and made it into an applicable science like engineering and that's when it got less loose on the world and that's when you have everything looked at through that intersectional lens or everything looked at through the lens of of racism and you know that's why you can get blm saying free palestine because no one's free until we're all free because it comes back to that interlocking thing of you know and i keep saying that when, when crenshaw wrote mapping the margins she didn't map them she gerrymandered them like she just blended them all together uh, sorry that, that that's my little spiel on critical theory no no it's fine and i you know I, listen i think that you know, what, what, you know, the idea of intersectionality in that legal context in mm -hmm. which Crenshaw coined it, mm -hmm. you know, created it. I think, I think there was meaning. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you, you can't deny that historically, um, you know, in the US, there's, there's been a really big disparity between, you know, a, a black person who commits the same crime as a white mm -hmm. person, um, you know, punishments and con consequences and sentencings have not been the same, you know, so she identified a legitimate problem. Um, you know, I think it just got taken, like, you know, so far outside of, of where it needed to be, or I don't even want to say where, where it was meant to be, because I don't really know the intentions. Um, no, I get that. And like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that, okay, I thought her paper in 89, and I forget what it's called, because just getting the it's like intersectional but i think that was the one where she was talking about the 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 car plant where they had only black men in the back and only white women up front but they had no black women 
And so they, oh, they met their quota yeah. for, you know, they met their racial quota and they met their, you know, gender quota, but they, there was no intersection of the two. Right. And then like, you know, the, the, the workers lost that case or the, the person, who, but I mean, that, that's an interesting point. And it's, but again, when you, when you go outwards with that idea of intersectionality, Okay, so and again, maybe that's not how she designed it to be used. And I know she said she's writing a book now coming out saying how she's where she thinks it went wrong. Um, maybe I'll read it. I don't know. Um, I'll give you an example of how some of this stuff, because it, like the, the intersectional feminist, when it mixes with gender theory, it harms women in India. And this is what it, like when we export it. So there's a really good interview. And sh- this woman's also done a movie called Dysphoria or Dysphoric. She's an Indian woman. Uh, she's a filmmaker. And she was talking about how, like, the gender theory, and when you mix it with the intersectional feminism, well, you have to have, you know, feminism, blah, blah, blah. You have to look at where you're intersecting, who's more oppressed than not. So, like, you know, the, the trans people are the, the most oppressed. And this. So, when you're taking away that gendered language and when you're taking away women's spaces, that is actually affecting women's safety because they never even had a safe space for women as it is. Now you're allowing biological males into that space. And then these people are co-opting the idea of hijras in, in India, which was never a third sex. It was boys who got castrated for the most part and then left on temple steps or just left to fend for themselves. And they would, you know, so they created their own third community, but it wasn't like we we're accepting this third sex type of thing. So they're using that and they're harming women. So she says it's another form of colonization. It's another form of colonialism. It's a Western idea being put foisted onto women in India. Interesting. And so that's where I, you know, where she was looking at the legal cases. Yeah. She, I, I'm not trying to deny that, that there was problems, but, you know, the, the solution to your problem is not the right one, you know, pointing it out is one thing, but what are you proposing as a solution? And that, I don't think that, I think the approach is a good way to maybe look at it and find the issue, but it's not a good way to solve it. So, you know, you need something else to, to solve it. So that, you know, like I said, if you look at the, the effect this is having in other countries, again, if you look at Africa, if you look at North Africa, the, the whole post-colonial thing was real detriment to the Berbers and the Amazigh. I mean, their culture was completely wiped out and it's, Oh, North Africa is, you know, our Arab countries. No, they're not. The Arabs were colonizers. They came in, they wiped out a rich culture, you know, Sudan and Somalia get called Arab countries in what world are Sudan and Somalia, Arab countries. They're Arab speaking because again, colonization, you know, South Africa, like I said, in 2016, they had the first conference. Last year, they announced at the University of Johannesburg or the University of Cape Town, a Department of Black Physics. Wow. So this stuff is another form of colonization. And I mean, I just recently spoke to uh, um, a native guy from the U.S. And, uh, you know, he's Hopi and I guess like he's part white, part native. And he lives on the Hopi reservation and he's talking about the damage that's doing to native culture. And it's, it's again, like, so it, it, they're well-meaning, like, don't get me wrong, the people who are, you know, maybe the people at the very top who are, you know, like that woman who just left BLM, like maybe they're doing it to bilk or whatever, but the people on the ground or people who are doing work, they're well-meaning, 
and again, like I have no other term for it, but evil, because you're taking people's good intentions and you're twisting it and you're making something horrific come out of it. And, you know, it's, it doesn't help like what's going on in native culture right now. Like, again, I'm speaking to one person and I'm, you know, getting his story from it, but what he's seeing in his, you know, on his, with his tribe and his reservation, what's going on with young people. He's like, you know, they're wallowing in victimhood. They just want to be victims and that's not going to help anyone get better. And like that, there's my problem with this stuff. I'm not saying that there's issues, but the way it's applied and the way, and you know, if she writes her book and maybe she means something different, I'll, I'm willing to give her a listen, but everything I've seen from her, yeah, it doesn't add up with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think in many ways, what, what's also happening is that, you, you know, you talk about the people who have good intentions and I think, you know, so many, so many of these social justice warriors, they do have good intentions and they want to make the world a better place. They hear about all the racism and they just, they want to, they want it to go away and they want to do their part. And I get that. And I respect that, but I think there's a, a, a serious lack of knowledge and that's being exploited by the people at the top, the tops of these movements. And I think that that's, that's part of the problem. And, you know, just going back to the K through 12 issue, um, kids are now being taught what to think instead of how to think. And that, that is a tremendous problem, you know, to not be able to think critically, um, to not be exposed to ideological diversity, you know, just going back to my son's school in LA, they're one of the most diverse private schools. It might be the most diverse private school in Los Angeles in terms of faculty and students. And, you know, everything's like diversity, diversity, diversity. And it's always been a great place, a wonderful place. And once they shifted gears after last summer and started changing everything, I mean, changing the website, bringing in anti-bias facilitators, it, it just, it changed everything. And so, you know, what, what became crystal clear is that, ideological or viewpoint diversity is not the kind of diversity that they're looking for or that they will tolerate. Um, you know, and so I think that's, I, I'm deeply saddened by that. I'm worried and I'm saddened because how do you, how do you learn how to think critically if you're not exposed to different viewpoints? You know I mean? I have you know, I've, I, with some of the things that I've written in the past six months, I've lost, I've lost two friends um, who just disagreed with some parts of what I said. It wasn't like they thought everything I said was horrible. They just disagreed with a couple parts or, you know, one uh, very close friend told me that she agreed with everything I'd written. This was in a Newsweek article. She agreed with everything I'd written. I didn't see anything wrong, but that because I'm not black, I had no right to speak about it at all. She, she dropped me as a friend. I mean, literally dropped me. And, you know, it's this, this is what's happening. We, nobody can tolerate ideological diversity anymore. We can't tolerate somebody having a, an opinion that's different from ours. You know, I have, you know, academic friends who do disagree with me, but we still, you know, I'm thinking of a few people in particular, we still have conversations and we still respect each other. But I think that is a phenomenon that's fading very, very quickly. And I think that's, that's tremendously sad. That's okay. Again, I'll, you know, bang on this drum, but the, the repressive tolerance, I mean, that's what that is. Whether it's coming from someone who's right wing or left wing, 
oh, you believe in abortion. I have to cut you out. You know, if you're a right wing person, I, I, I don't know, but like, let's take that for example. Oh, you know, you supported Trump's moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem. I have to cut you out. Like whatever, like it's, that's repressive tolerance. I mean, that's all it is. It's you repress in your mind. You think that, you know, the, because more black women get abortions. So you think, okay, if you stop abortions, it'll be more black babies or whatever that you're thinking is there. That's evil. So someone who supports abortion, I have to cut them out or, you know, someone who doesn't support black lives matter must be racist and evil. So I have to cut them out. I mean, that's, that's what that's been doing. And like, you know, again, if you go back and look at it, it's from the mid eighties that that stuff came in. Um, and that was first to train the teachers. Then it got into schools. You know, if you look at the, the way painting conservatism and, you know, on the Fox side and the Breitbart and, you know, when Rush Limbaugh was still alive and he was anything liberal was evil. So I'm mean, like, I'm not saying that there, there isn't on the other side. Like I, you know, I, uh, whatever, not that I like, I'm not that I'm a huge fan or anything, but you know, clean your room, like the Jordan Peterson thing. I'm, I, I have always said I was from the, you know, on the left side of things. So I want my side fixed because, you know, when the crazies came out in the nineties and the eighties for rock music and rap music and whatever, you know, the, the, the Christian right, when they, when they came out, there was a sensible left. Those people on the right never went away, but the sensible left is gone. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying critical race theory is the most, is the biggest problem that we're facing. I'm saying things like critical race theory and intersectionality, gender. They present the biggest impediment to solving our problems. Like when you have people saying, get rid like, I'm not, you know, whatever you think of Greta Thunberg, you know, but now there's activists saying we want activists of color because there's enough white people. And I'm not going to get involved in, in the environment until we get activists of color. Okay. That's an impediment to getting environmental issues solved. You know, right. looking at everything is in white people evil and whiteness evil is not going to solve racial issues, you know, and calling everyone and everything a transphobe because they don't want, you know, biological men competing with women is so therein my lies. My problem with all this stuff is if we could actually have that conversation, we could fix a lot of these problems, but this thing gets in there and it divides and it's, it only knows how to break apart. I mean, they took the disrupt and dismantle and they, you know, they actually want to do that. They want to disrupt and dismantle everything. And it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a mind. It's not a, you know, like a mental exercise anymore. Right. Right. Well, and you can't, you can't criticize what's going on in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. And this gets into some of your personal history. You know, you can't criticize your own group. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a liberal. I'm somebody who's left of center. And that's, you know, I, I've never been, I mean, well, maybe when I was like a freshman in college, I, I was maybe, maybe I was a conservative, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> don't tell. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as you know, most of my adult life, you know, especially because I've been an academic, you know, I've been somebody who's on the left, but also somebody who's always willing to kind of like see if there's a, a good point on the other side. I'm always happy to acknowledge it because I, I, I appreciate that. That's that's just how my my brain works. Um, you know, but like 
some of the criticisms I've made about some of the stuff going on the left, like, you know, criticizing my own group has, you know, somebody on Twitter a couple of weeks ago referred to me as um, a known radical right-wing activist. I was like, (laughs) I was like, no, but but this is what's happening, right? You, 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 you just want to like make your own side better and you get accused of being on the other side, you know, the dark evil other side. And this is such a problem. And like, even thinking about, you know, all of these black heterodox voices, so many of them are on the left you know, people like, um, you know, John McWhorter, for instance, um, but there, you know, some of these people are increasingly going on talk shows like Megyn Kelly, right, who's a, a conservative talk show host, because people on the left don't want to have conversations with heterodox thinkers. And so it's forcing us into conversations with people on the right. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think that's a good thing because I think we're both, you know, those of us who lie just to the left or just to the right of the center are starting to realize that maybe, maybe we have more in common. Maybe there are conversations and dialogues that can be really useful here. So I think ultimately it's not a bad thing, but you know, when somebody like, um, you know, John McWhorter goes on, you know, Megyn Kelly's show, he's going to get demonized by the left. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's the problem. Like we're really at an impasse. I mean, you just, I, I don't, I don't know where to go from here. And okay. And the other way around, like, and I, I don't want to, because I haven't really seen it, but let's say um, someone like Thomas Sowell went on the Young Turks. Okay. I, I, I don't think that would happen, you know, but, but let's just say that happened. You would get a bunch of Thomas Sowell fanboys going, how could you go speak to Chen Uger and blah, 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 blah. Like you would have that happen. Like, so yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, there is that, and I don't want to do a both sidesism here, but there is, again, it's the, the, the best way I've heard this explained. And it just maybe because it, it was easy for me to visualize it. You know, I, I'd been kind of cheesily using the the Yeats poem there, the second coming, saying, you know, the center cannot hold. But um, it was James Lindsay. He was on Joe Rogan a couple of years back, and he described it. He said, if you look at a centrifuge, what a centrifuge does is it takes everything and it splits it out, pushes it to the edges, and then it breaks apart in the middle. So you could have a, like a ball of water in the middle, and you start spinning and spinning and spinning it. Everything goes to the edges and nothing left in the center. That's what, what's been happening here. It's, you know, the Democrats start going a little further left. So instead of the Republicans moving just a little bit more to the center, not even to the left, but just closer to their side of the center, they go further right. And then the Democrats go further right. And then it's, you know, that pendulum is going from one extreme to the other, and it's not stopping in the same middle for any time, any, you know, valuable length of time. It needs to slow down in that center for a little bit. And that's, someone's got to, I mean, someone's got to take the first move and move back into the center, but it's like, you know, playing chicken. It's Right. Right. Well, and I mean, and the, 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 the irony is that most Americans, and I'm going to guess most Canadians mm-hmm. are, are more moderate, right? Most, most, you know, I'll speak for Americans, Americans for the most part, aren't extreme radical, you know, it, those kinds of sensibilities mm-hmm. don't define them. You know, those are small, loud groups. Um, most people are, probably a little closer to the center and are more moderate and don't want radical politics. But that's, that seems like, you know, all we have right now, or we're, we're very quickly getting to a point where that's all we have. Yeah. And I mean, look, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, I've been going for a bit, but yeah, like, like that, that radical politics. And again, I think I'll tie this back to how we started that, that, that 
the, the anti-Semitism, that's kind of a canary in the coal mine for the radical politics. Because, okay, you know, like I said, I saw the, you know, the, with the brown people, you're white adjacent, you know, that's, okay, I put that in my Twitter bio that like, you know, that I'm adjacent and I even call myself an enabler, like, cause they, they, these stupid terms that make you mean you're supposedly evil, but like you're white adjacent yeah. or, but I mean, look how fast it took for attacks on Jewish people. And I mean, the whole idea of Jews with whiteness, I'm not saying it wasn't around for a while, but it just really got pushed in the last year. And it's, you know, so when that starts happening, like I, I'll leave you with, you know, I'll, I'll give it to you after this, but I've always said, I'm afraid of the overcorrection that's coming on the left, but I'm terrified of the overcorrection that will come from the right. And it's, that's where I'm at right now. I mean, I, I, I don't want to see a race war. There was just recently an article and I'm trying to figure, it was in a large, large paper, um, you know, more and more whites are starting to become aware of their racial identity. And, it, you know, we should get away from everyone getting a, their racial identity, but we don't need a white racial identity politics. We've seen where that leads. <laughs> right, right, right. And this, this, is the, this is the logical and the end result of pushing critical race theory as the only way to see everything. This is a problem. I mean, it's it's forcing people into these racial categories and to see themselves as, you know, you, you have to pick, am, am I white? Am I black? Am I brown? Am I, what am I? You have to pick. And that doesn't lead to a good place for anybody. No, not at all. And again, like I said, I, I don't want to keep you too long. So thanks a lot for coming on. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, if you got any last words, please go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I would say, you know, check out the, the speech project page that I edit at the Jewish Journal. I'm trying to bring together a lot of heterodox voices and, you know, pieces from different publications. Um, and otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Monica Osborne. All right, great. Well, once again, thanks a lot, Monica. It was wonderful talking to you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.